what would you say if you had to sum up your whole life in a single sentence or phrase? Is there one rule you live by, one motto that you'd like to have emblazoned in Latin on the family crest? A few years ago, I went to a workshop on time management at the Disney Institute in Orlando. And this workshop wasn't about management tips for controlling your calendar or how to use the best smartphone apps most effectively. Instead, it was about figuring out what's most important in your life and then using that information to set your priorities. And one of the steps that the workshop had us go through was to write a personal mission statement that could not be more than one sentence long. It had to be a statement of our more important core values, and it had to lead to some action. It's asking a lot from a single sentence, but it's not impossible. For centuries, people have been using this same exercise to help set their priorities. In fact, that's what's happening in today's gospel. Jesus is caught in a little bit of a confrontation with the scribes, the religious authorities who were particularly devoted to study and debate about the scriptures. And in a debating style that was very common at the time, the scribe here asked Jesus to tell him which of the commandments of the scriptures is the greatest. And in his answer, Jesus quotes the Shema, the Hebrew prayer taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6, our first reading. The Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. That would have been a common answer to the question, which is the greatest law. But we usually want to focus on the second part, which, talk, which talks about its actions, but it's really based on that first sentence, which we tend to gloss over a little bit. The Lord your God is one. There is no other. Now, this is a statement of monotheism, which we pretty much take for granted, but which in the ancient world would have been a radical departure. Because there is only one God, he's in charge of everything and can't be divided. And so we owe this one singular God all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you're coming from a worldview in which there are many different gods, you have to go to different ones for different things. And so your, your devotion and your loyalty would be divided up between these various gods. So for the people of ancient Israel to say, no, there's really just the one, is going to radically change how you see the world around you. And then Jesus even takes this a step further. He says that you have to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's taking a quote from Leviticus chapter 19. And this paraphrase of the golden rule extends that greatest commandment. It's not enough to simply love God, even if you love God as completely as the Shema suggests. Because there is only the one God, not only do we belong to him, but everyone else belongs to him as well. So we can't pretend to love God if we don't also love all these people that belong to him. Regardless of what those other people believe, if we believe that there is only one God, we must love all his people because he loves them. 
If your love of God doesn't lead you to love your neighbor, it's not complete. It's not even real. Because there is only one God who loves all people, if, they, if we ask the question, who is my neighbor, the answer is everyone. It's not enough to love God in the abstract. It's all well and good to have a personal relationship with the Lord. But Jesus teaches us that our faith has to extend beyond me and God. Our love of God must become concrete and it does that when we live lives of justice and service for the people that God loves. In our first reading and throughout the book of Exodus, we have this scene where God has led his people out of Egypt. He has rescued them and he's going to establish them in their own land. And they really couldn't ask for more proof of God's love than that. They are no longer slaves, but they are now their own masters but they were still bound to act with justice. And so they were warned not to turn around and oppress the foreigner in their midst, nor are they to neglect the widows and the orphans and the poor. These people are now their neighbors, and God demands that they be treated with charity and justice. History has shown us over and over again that we have a human tendency as oppressed people, once we are freed, to become the oppressors. It's easy to forget where we've come from. Freedom fighters become despots. Puritans freeing, fleeing persecution outlaw the free exercise of religion. A nation of immigrants has laws and policies that ignores the plight of refugees and immigrants. If we believe that the Lord hears the cry of the poor, we'd better be sure the poor are not crying out against us. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We ask for equal rights and justice for ourselves, but we'd better be ready to fight for the same for other people, not just out of some abstract sense of fairness, but because working for justice is how we love our neighbors and how we complete our love of God. This is absolutely essential to our faith. And it's important to remember that our faith calls us to both justice and charity. Charity calls us to feed the poor, to provide for the hungry, to make sure people have decent housing and clothing and you know, we care for the sick. But justice asks us to look at those structures of our society that put those things at risk. And we have to do both. If our love of God doesn't lead directly to love of our neighbors, then our worship becomes self-serving and our witness loses credibility. But if our faith integrates the love of God and the love of neighbor, then no one can deny the good that God accomplishes through us. <laughs>